Now Tomo will come up and read today's scripture passage. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Good afternoon again, everyone, and, and Merry Christmas to all of you. It's a, it's a joy. To, to see you all. Um, if you're a guest with us today, again, we just want to let you know that we're super, super thankful for your presence with us. Um, you are welcome here, not just uh, by me, but you are welcomed here by Jesus himself, who I trust has brought you here to worship and to, to hear from his word and to sing together and to pray together. I hope the next few days are filled with warmth and, and, uh, and good traditions. Um, I know maybe some of your families have traditions that you look forward to annually. Maybe some of you have traditions you don't look forward to, but you do them anyway. There are several that our family has that I'm really, I look forward to every year. But today, now at least, I want to invite us to push past traditions and to look carefully at a historic event that took place over 2,000 years ago in a faraway place and in a faraway culture. The passage that Tomo just read to us, thank you, brother, is probably familiar to some of us. And that familiarity could be a problem because familiarity can sometimes make us overlook the significance of a story. We might miss its impact because we're so used to it, because reading it feels like a tradition. So again, traditions are great, but let's push past tradition and let's look at this event carefully. If you were unfamiliar with the account that was just read, you might actually be in an advantage. But either way, let's look at these details. Let's take them in. And we might find that what's here has the power to change our lives. So open to Matthew 1 if you can. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 1 so that you can see if what I'm saying really is in this text or not. I hope it's there. The short narrative focuses on the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't give us every single detail leading up to his birth, but what it does tell us is fascinating. If we pay attention to it, our minds can be blown by it. So, so let's look at it, and let's focus on two people, the two people that get the most attention in this account, namely Joseph and Jesus. So first we're going to ask, who is Joseph? And then secondly, we're going to ask, who is Jesus? So who was this man, Joseph? What does this passage show us about him? Well, first off, 
He's called son of David, which means that he was a Jewish man, and he was a distant descendant of Israel's greatest king, David. And he's engaged to a woman named Mary, who is also a distant descendant of David. And we don't get to know how old they were when all this went down. Joseph himself could have been as young as 18 years old. 18. Read it through that filter and get a kind of a different angle on this story. But we can't really be sure how old he was. Mary could have been younger than 18. By the way, if we were to read the Gospel of Luke, we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, but the Gospel of Luke, it focuses a lot more on the experience of, of Mary, her perspective, her role in all this, which is equally fascinating, if not more so. And we, we looked at that account from Mary's perspective a few years back. Today, we're going to zero in on Joseph, and it's not because Joseph matters more or, or because he's more impressive. In fact, I'd argue that apart from Jesus himself, there may not be anyone in the Bible more impressive than Mary. I'm not sure that there is. But the Gospel of Matthew chooses to, to key in on Joseph. So we will look at him today, and we're asking, who is he? Well, from Joseph's perspective, he was in a very tight spot because the woman that he was engaged to marry turned out to be pregnant, and he knew the child was not his. Hmm. Let, let that settle in. What, what must that feel like? What must that have felt like for him? In the ancient Jewish world, to be engaged to someone, or the word that my translation of the Bible uses is betrothed, it meant to be committed to marry this person. But it was more binding than, than what we are used to when we think about engagement as, as in the Western world. In fact, in order to cancel an engagement in this culture, it, it would have required more than just calling off the wedding. No, it would have required an actual legal divorce proceeding. It was a big deal. And, and, and on top of that, to be pregnant, really, to have sex outside of official marriage, to have sex while you were engaged before being officially married, well, that was forbidden by God. It still is, by the way, but it certainly was then. I know... We, we just announced that the, the fourth and fifth graders are in here today. You are very welcome into this gathering. I'm so happy that fourth and fifth graders are here. Um, some of what I just said and some of what might come up a little later might, might feel a little um, cringy. To, it might feel a little confusing to you. So I want to I tell you, if anything, if anything in this message comes up that is a little bit confusing to you or maybe like you're not sure what to make of it, look, look over at your mom or your dad, if they're nearby, and say, and say, Mom, Dad, I'd like to talk more about that later. And they will be thrilled to unpack it all with you later today. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you see the bind that Joseph was in, don't you? Now, 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 some of us, we have the luxury of knowing how this story plays out. So we read it and already think, well, Joseph's going to be fine. But Joseph didn't know how this story was going to play out. What was he supposed to think about all this? When, when Mary assured, she must have assured him, Joseph, I have been faithful to you. She must have told him, no, no, I have not been unfaithful. This, this, she must have told him that this pregnancy was, was a miraculous act of God. But now he's left with the choice of whether to believe her. Could he believe her? Would anyone else believe them? Imagine the stress he was under, the confusion, the fear that this couple must have felt. 
Imagine the fear that Joseph was carrying. Well, his response to all this actually tells us a lot about him and about his character. Look at verse 19. It says there, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. Two things that pop out about this man. He was a just man. That means he was, another word for that is righteous. He, he was committed to doing what was right in God's eyes. And, and he was apparently a thoughtful man, a, a kind man. I really like the way the, the NIV, the New International Version, translates this into English. Let's look at that version real quick. Verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So he cared about God's law. He cared about what God said was right. But he also was merciful. He didn't want to see this woman shamed just so that he could avoid being shamed. He didn't want to escape and leave her and throw her under the bus. Now, now I think that's an admirable response. You might read this and, and think, well, he could have handled it better, perhaps. But I wonder how many of us would have handled this situation as well as Joseph did. There's no simple solution here, given the circumstances. He wanted to be faithful to God's law, and that, that would have meant, don't marry this woman if she has apparently been unfaithful to you. But he also wanted to protect her. And so the very next verse says, he considered these things. Imagine him lying awake in bed wrestling with all of this, trying to make sense of it all. He's running through possible solutions, and none of them are great. Until, until, look at verse 20. Verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This, this messenger from God, an angel, says to Joseph, this is all a plan from God. Joseph, you've, you've been chosen to participate in a supernatural rescue mission, which is thrilling on the surface, but, but it's also strange, isn't it? And, and a little scary. A stranger who doesn't even, I'm not even sure if he's really human, what, what, who is this guy, shows up in my dreams and he's telling me that I'm part of this cosmic plan by God to rescue the world. Yes, thrilling, but also scary. Maybe that's why the angel's very first instructions are, don't be afraid. <laughs> More accurately, he says, he says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So what does Joseph do in response? Look at verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And what did that entail? Well, he took his wife but he knew her not. That's a euphemism for they did not sleep together until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. 
in spite of whatever confusion this man was experiencing, in spite of whatever fear he was experiencing, and he must have felt fear, he followed God's instructions to the T. He obeyed. Do you see the, the courage that must have taken for him and for Mary? Here's why he must have been afraid. What would everyone think? This is a no-win situation, really. As he marries his pregnant fiance in this small town, people would either think, one, he had been unrighteous, he had broken God's law, which meant that he deserved scorn, or they would think that he was foolish. <laughs> Foolish enough to marry a woman who had cheated on him and lied to him about it and cooked up a story. In which case he deserved ridicule, either scorn or ridicule. And I'm guessing he probably had to endure both scorn and ridicule. Accusations of being ungodly and sinful and mocking for being an idiot. Shame on top of shame. And so did Mary, it's what she faced. Perhaps even more so than he did. So, so do you see the courage it must have taken them to obey God? Do you see how costly obedience was? Costly to their reputation, to their family, to their future. This raises a question that I've been asking myself. I want to ask you, have you ever been afraid to obey God? Have you ever been afraid to obey God? Because, because it would be too hard to obey him. Because obedience is going to cost too much. Are you afraid to obey God in some area of your life right now? Because you recognize that it would be too costly. And the fact is that obedience is often costly. Obedience to God, that is, is often costly. And that cost, it sometimes scares us, even paralyzes us. I'll give you some examples. How about a man who's living with a deep, dark secret? There's some sin that he's been hiding and harboring. He knows that God wants him to confess it, that God is saying, come, come, you're out of hiding. Bring your sin into the light and finally be free. But he's too scared to do it. What will they think of me, he says. What will this mean for my reputation? This may even cost me my livelihood. Or a young person who's committed to a relationship that God wants them out of. Because it's clear that it's not helping them. It's, it, it, it's calling them, he's calling them to end this relationship that, for their own good. Because it's not godly. It may be a friendship. It may be a romantic relationship. And it's pulling them further and further away from God. Not toward God. And so God says, leave it behind. But they're afraid of what life would look like without this person. They fear that they would not be able to be happy without this person. The loss of that person is too high a cost. So it keeps them from, from obedience. And, and really, it keeps them from peace as well. Or maybe it's someone who God is calling into a relationship. God is calling you towards someone to forgive someone, to reconcile with someone, to start rebuilding a broken relationship. You know God is calling you to work towards rebuilding that broken relationship, but it's too scary. It'll cost too much. 
These are just a couple of examples, but there are so many more, aren't there? How about you? How about you? Have you ever been too afraid to follow in the direction that God is clearly calling you? He's making it clear through his word, through the counsel of brothers and sisters, other people that you trust and you know have your best interests in mind, that you know have, have, have wisdom from Christ and they're, and they're instructing you and, and encouraging you. But you're scared and so you find yourself stuck. You find yourself considering and wrestling, but never simply trusting and obeying. This account offers us help with that fear because I think it's something that probably we can all relate to. This account offers help for us in that fear. But first we need to see the other person at the center of the story. So we asked, who is Joseph? Now let's see, who is Jesus? What does this passage show us about him? Well, the very first thing the angel of the Lord says about him is this. He says, the baby that's conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, this, this little life that's being formed in her is from God. Now, in Joseph's days, dads and moms named their kids. It's common in many cultures like ours, right? Who names kids? Usually it's the parents, in many cultures at least. And certainly our practice and my family the parents picked the name. And that seems right to me because, after all, that is your baby. My wife and I have we, five kids. We've never asked for name suggestions. I've never once asked anyone for a name suggestion. You know why? Because I don't care to hear any suggestions. I'm not interested. My, fa my family is filled with people who have lots of opinions. And their opinions matter to me in some way. My extended family, their opinions matter to me in certain areas. But I don't care what their opinion is about what I should name my child. Or if they don't like the name of my child. In fact, not only do I not seek opinions, I wouldn't even tell my brothers what I was going to name my child until the child was born. Because once the child was born, then they can't say, oh, I don't like that name, then they have to say, oh, that's such a great name. <laughs> it's your baby, you name it. Someone else wants to name a baby, they're going to have to find a baby of their own first before they name it. But when we come to this account in Matthew 1, we find that Joseph doesn't get to name the baby. He doesn't get to choose a name. Who named Jesus? Who picked it? Verse 21, God himself says, you will, you shall call him Jesus. In other words, God is saying, Joseph, this is my son. This child, you don't get to name him because he's my son. This child is certainly not the result of some infidelity. He's not the, the result of some sexual indiscretion. No, don't worry about that, Joseph. Don't worry about that. But also recognize this. He's from me. He's my son. And so I will name him. You'll simply name him what I tell you to. But wait, this miracle, it's even more thrilling because the very next thing the angel says is that this son, verse 21, will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. He is a rescuer from God. He's not just a baby from God. He's a savior sent from God. Now, Matthew already implied this. If, you're, if, you, if you look closely enough, you'll see it was already implied way back in verse 18, our very first verse, because it says there that the, it's this, this whole account is about the birth of Jesus Christ. Birth of Jesus Christ. And what is Christ? Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
Christ means the anointed one. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the chosen one. It's, it's the Greek word for Messiah. So the angel is saying, Joseph, your fiance right now, she's carrying the promised, long-expected Savior. And Jewish people had been waiting for the Savior for so long. Generation after generation had held on to this promise that God would one day send a Messiah. And they had passed this promise down generation a generation. Perhaps some of them wondering, can we still keep believing? When will he send the Messiah? When will he send it? They were losing faith at points and fighting to maintain that faith and pass it on to their children and hoping that their children would also hold on to this promise that God would one day send a Savior. And now here the day had finally arrived. The Savior would be royalty, a king descended from David to rescue his people. And at this point in, in history, most Jewish people would have commonly believed that, that the Messiah was going to come to rescue us from oppressive other nations. So at this point in history, they would have said, the Messiah is coming to free us from Roman occupation, to get out from under the crushing fist of the Roman Empire. But the angel says, just to be clear, this promised Savior has even a deeper purpose in mind. Yes, he cares about your freedom from oppressive regimes, but he's more deeply committed to save you. He will even save you from your sins. You see, this Savior was coming to free his people from guilt. The guilt that they would still carry with them, even if the Roman Empire fell or went away and they got out from under their oppression, the Jewish people would still have to walk around with guilt, guilt over their own sins. God had promised to send a Savior to free us, free them, free the world from the eternal consequences of all our failings, to liberate us from the controlling power of evil, not just evil empires. You see, he was coming to free us from ourselves. He was coming to free us from our worst impulses, from our most corrupt tendencies, from all that is wrong with us, and there is so much wrong with us. You know, Joseph was a great man. I do believe he was, but he was still a man. Like every other human in this room and in the world, Joseph had failed to live up to his own standard of goodness, not to mention God's perfect standard of goodness. So, so even as we look at Joseph and we see this, this just and thoughtful and, and merciful man, he had, like all of us at times, been unjust and thoughtless and merciless. And just like you, he needed rescue from himself. He needed to be saved from his sins. And so do all of us in this room and in the whole wide world throughout history. No matter how just or kind or thoughtful you think you are. No, just like every other human throughout history, you and I, we need forgiveness. We need rescue from our sins. Every human throughout history has had that same need, except for one. Except for one. There is one perfect person who had no sins to be rescued from. 
And the angel's here saying, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph your, your fiance is carrying him. And I can confidently say to you today that Jesus is perfectly righteous, sinless, free from sin. And I know that for one reason. It's revealed here in this passage, in fact. It's in the pronouns, actually. It's in the pronouns. Consider this. Throughout the Old Testament, God often described himself as saving his people. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you've come across this phrase often. God is saying, I will save my people. He says, you are my people, and I am your God. I will deliver my people from their enemies. So, so think about that when we hear the angel show up, and he announces Jesus as Savior, but he does not say, call him Jesus, for he will save God's people from their sins. No, he says, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His people. In other words, he is God. The name of Jesus means God saves. And in this case, it fits him perfectly because he is the God who saves. The perfect one, the sinless one who came from God to rescue and who is God who rescues. He's the creator of the universe. We sang about this as we were singing that, that, that version of Holy, Holy, Holy just a few moments ago. The, the very maker of Mary and Joseph, right? The, the infinite one who existed before anything was, he had now taken the form of an embryo, fragile and small, an unborn child. And he would be born to save his people who were his possession. And in case that doesn't make it clear enough that Jesus is God, the angel wants us to see this. He makes it even more clear because he quotes something that the prophet Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier. There, it's right there in verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, Joseph, this, this unplanned pregnancy was all part of God's plan to come close to us, to be present with us. The baby himself is God with you and with Mary right now. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. As you walk into this season that's going to be completely filled with challenges, you will be thought ill of. There will be rumors spread about you, Joseph. You're going to find it hard to start life as a couple under these circumstances. But don't worry, don't worry. Because as sure as your fiancé is pregnant mysteriously right now, God is with you. God is with you in all of this. And if you have trouble, Joseph, remembering that God is with you, look, look down at your wife's midsection. You'll be reminded. He's with us. And he's still the mighty God. The everlasting Lord. Again, because many of us know this story, we, we might miss the impact that all that might have had on, on Joseph or, or really on any Jewish person. The, the Christian message is that the eternal God took the form of a child. And that might just become very familiar to us if we grew up hearing it. He became human. About 60 years or so later, the Apostle Paul 
would write this about Jesus in Colossians 2. He would say, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, all of what God is, all of who God is, the fullness of God exists physically in this man, Jesus. Those are words that no one had ever said about anyone before. And Jesus' disciples would all say the same thing. In those days, you know, the, the Greeks, the Romans, they had gods, little g gods that they believed in. But their, their little g gods were very much like people. So you could talk about them as if they were people, right? They were, they were imperfect, the Greek gods were, the Roman gods. They were, they were fallible. You couldn't always trust them. You know what? They, they were a lot like us. But the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, he was the infinite creator, the all-knowing, all-powerful, and holy God. The God who we read in the Old Testament could not be approached carelessly because his sheer otherness was like a consuming fire. People, people wouldn't even write his whole name down on paper for fear that they were somehow offending his holiness. And yet this angel says, the holy, infinite creator God that you and your fathers worship, Joseph, he's becoming one of you to save you. The book of Hebrews tells us that he became Jesus, the, 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 the second person of the Trinity, became like us in every way, every way, except sin, he says. And yet, though he never sinned, he was willing to accept the blame and the penalty for our sin. Luke's gospel says he was counted among the transgressors. He was numbered amongst sinners, thrown in with them. He was looked at by people looked at him as immoral. People looked at Jesus and said he is unworthy of respect. He's unworthy to be a member of our community. In fact, let's crucify him, which is the, the most powerful way that we could say he does not deserve to be one of us. Not just one of us Israelites, one of us alive. Dispense with him. He was rejected as a sinner. He was willing to be criticized and condemned and ultimately executed for our sins. His people's sins. And so that God himself would die in humanity's place. And now, now Joseph hadn't seen all that play out yet. All he had were, were these little details. They were mind-blowing details. But it wasn't all the details. When the angel said, this unborn baby is from God, he is God, and he will save his people. But then it says that when Joseph woke up from that dream, he had a choice to make, didn't he? He either had to reject everything he had just heard and seen, just rejected all this crazy. Man, that was a weird dream. Or, or he would have to believe it and obey it. It seems to me like those are the only two options he had. Either walk away from Mary and the child and try to salvage his future, or he had to do as the angel commanded him. In other words, surrender himself completely to this Lord and risk all to obey him, or walk away. Those were his only reasonable options. And, and so really it is for us, 
It's the same situation that we find ourselves in when it comes to responding with trust and obedience to God. When you hear this announcement of who Jesus is, you can either reject it as crazy or you have to believe it and surrender yourself completely to him as Lord. Ultimately, the end of the day and at the end of our lives, those are the only reasonable options. What's unreasonable, I would submit to you, what is completely unreasonable, is to hear it and respond with disinterest or apathy. Or perhaps even worse, to receive it with a kind of mild, unmoved acceptance that says, yeah, I believe that, so what? That's perhaps even more unreasonable. You see, Joseph had ultimately, now he responded very quickly. He woke up, responded with trust and faith. Not all of us are going to respond that quickly, but ultimately we must respond either one way or the other. Joseph had to reject it or commit fully in faith to this news of a Savior named Jesus. And so Joseph chose the latter. But how about us? How about us? It makes no sense to say, okay, I believe it, and then live as if it doesn't matter. And that doesn't make sense. If everything the angel said is true, then it makes no sense to walk through life as if, yeah, I believe it, but it doesn't really affect me in any practical way. Of course, if what the angel said is not true, then it doesn't make sense to give it a second thought. All this becomes very clear every time we see someone interact with Jesus in the Gospels. And we're going to see this as we, we're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark in the new year. And we're going to see this again and again. As people meet Jesus, they, some people meet Jesus and they surrender their lives to him immediately. Others meet him and don't believe. For one reason or another, they ultimately reject him and they walk away. But no one, no one ever remains unmoved in one direction or another. No one in the Bible is apathetic toward Jesus. It wouldn't make sense to be. What he claimed and what he did and what he taught was too impactful, too serious. You either have to reject it wholly or surrender yourself to it. You know, you know what else makes no sense? It makes no sense to say, I believe in this Jesus, in this Lord, and yet reject his instructions for my life. To ignore or refuse whatever he is calling you to, or to refuse whatever he is calling you not to do or away from. But isn't that what we do sometimes? Don't we all do this? This, this, this account confronts us with that tendency to say, I believe in Jesus. Uh, he is my Lord, and yet... I'm uncomfortable and unwilling to do the things that he's clearly calling me to. Yeah, this passage, it confronts us with that because not only does it tell us who Jesus is, but it calls us to trust and obey him, whatever the cost is, whatever the cost. You know, the Bible is filled with people whom God calls to trust and follow him into difficult situations. Think about some of the Bible stories you may have heard Several of them, many of them, revolve around God approaching a person and calling them into something that's scary. <laughs> and yet, and yet, he, what he's really calling them into is a scary future, but it's also a secure and joyful future. 
perhaps the individual that most clearly foreshadows Joseph was Abraham. Abraham, whom God called to, to leave his homeland altogether, leave it behind, just because God had promised him that he would give him a son and eventually a family that would be a blessing to the whole world. And so very much like Abraham, Joseph believed God's word. He's kind of like Abraham. He believed God's word, and he stepped forward in faith. There may have been fear and trembling, but he accepted the call. I asked before, is there anything that scares you, that keeps you from stepping into a, a trusting obedience to God? Is there anything that he is calling you into as this year wraps up and you look at this new year ahead of you? Is he still calling you into something or anything that he's calling you away from and you're afraid to obey? Perhaps you fear the cost. And, and, and maybe you're not, it's not, a, it's not a kind of defiance that says, I don't care what you say, God, I'm not going to obey you. It's not that kind of proud defiance. It's more of like this fearful, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure I can deal with the repercussions of being faithful to my faithful God. Well, for Joseph... Obedience started with simply believing, with simply believing that Jesus is Savior. And so that's a starting point for all of us. Do you believe that Jesus is Savior? Do you believe that like Joseph, you need a Savior? If so, he invites you, he invites you to entrust your life to him completely, to submit to his lordship and receive all that he has for you. You know, Joseph's response that night led him into lots of trouble, but it was good trouble. It also led him into an intimate relationship with Jesus. Imagine the privilege that this man experienced of being up front, the Son of God, raising him. It led Joseph into an adventure of sorts. He would end up having to leave Nazareth, go to Bethlehem, eventually go to Egypt, back to Nazareth. He'd have to raise this family and deal with all of the social repercussions of having a Messiah for a son. What an adventure. He had to live with the threat of death as well. His death and the death of his child. His life would never be the same again. His life would never be. But, but he needed the courage to believe and obey. And so do we. So do we. Joseph knew that what lie ahead for him would be difficult. He knew what the social consequences were going to be. But the fact is that to some degree, trusting obedience to God will always bring pain. Won't it? Attachment to Jesus will always, in some form, bring discomfort and tough consequences for us too, like, like the loss of uh, popularity, for instance, or the loss of respect. When you're attached to Jesus, you might lose some career opportunities. You... Trusting Jesus sometimes means doing hard things, doesn't it? And Jesus never hid this from his disciples. Nope. He told them, straight up, count the cost of following me. 
He said from the beginning. So no one, if you're a follower of Jesus who's afraid to obey him, let's not get this twisted. Jesus didn't rope us into this discipleship thing by lying to us and hiding the fine print. He told us from the get-go, count the cost. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. But he also promised final victory and eternal well-being. He said, in this world you'll have trouble, but, but take heart. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. Trusting obedience to Jesus will cost you, but it will never cost you anything you really need. On the contrary, it will lead you toward what you really need. Whatever you fear losing, if Jesus allows you to lose it, you didn't need it. But trusting obedience to him will lead you to what you do really need. This past year, um, I watched a movie called All Quiet on the Western Front. Did anyone watch this? It's a World War I movie. It tells the story of these young, naive men who were called to enlist in the army with the promise of adventure and honor and valor. Kids, man, they jumped in. They said, I want to serve my country. I want to I go to war. I want to kill some Nazis. And instead, what they experienced was not adventure or honor, but brutality and trauma. And by the end of the movie, they're either scarred or completely emotionally destroyed, or they are dead. It made me think that this to some degree is like what life apart from God is. Life lived from a, a, a position, a, a settled resistance to and an, an alienation from God. You see, there are many things in life that might promise us adventure and honor and valor and joy and peace. But what they end up leading us into is really brokenness and scar and trauma and destruction. God is so utterly different. He's so different. You see, what he calls us to, he says, I'm, what I'm calling you to will sometimes be very hard. He tells us so. But he always gives us the sure promise that all will be well in the end. In fact, all will be glorious in the end. You will receive eternal life. And, and right here and now, the peace of knowing that you are living for the purpose for which God made you. To know and to follow him who died for you. He will be with us. He is God with us through all of it. So you can trust him. So finally, folks, as I end here, I wonder, I wonder for some of us, when we look at this example of Joseph, I wonder if some of us feel a little bit like a loser when we read about Joseph. I do. Some, I, I look at, I see, I see his courage. I see his righteousness. He's so principled. I see his obedience. And, and, and it might make us feel kind of cowardly. It might make us feel kind of unrighteous, kind of unfaithful. We don't measure up to him. Well, if that's the case, we can admit it. Let's, I'll be first in line. Let's admit it. And we can receive forgiveness. We can receive the salvation that Joseph heard about that night. Because Jesus saves unrighteous, fearful, hesitant people. Like Pastor Jack Miller would often say, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved 
than you ever dared hope. The God who loves you calls you to trust in him completely. Let's entrust him with our fearfulness, our hesitancy. But let's trust him anyway. Let's obey him. And let's see if he won't transform us into people of courage. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we do pray that you'd make us courageous, but not for our own glory, Lord. We, we want to be courageous enough to simply follow Jesus into wherever he calls us and leads us. If he's calling us towards repentance, we want to follow. If he's calling us towards others to love others better, we want to do that. If he's calling us to simply believe the gospel, we want to do that regardless of the cost. Help us. Give us courage, even as we enter this new year, to embrace the promise that you, Jesus, are from God, you are God, and you are the Savior we need, and we can trust you with everything. It's in your name we pray. Amen.